Have you ever been at the bedside of someone as they were dying? Have you ever been there in the last days or hours, perhaps while they were still conscious, still able to speak, and heard them share from their heart what was most important to them, what was going on inside of them? I want to suggest to you that the prospect of someone's imminent death has a way of surfacing their true substance. I'd like to suggest that you could actually go a very long time thinking that you knew someone, thinking that their way of of speaking, their apparent values were the core of them, when all along they might have simply been presenting these things as a veneer that concealed much of the truest feelings and the deepest convictions that flowed through the deepest channels of his or her being. But when death lays its ax to the trunk of someone's life, it is amazing how the sap of the soul comes flowing out. I think this is why there has been such fascination in recent years with books that are all about that last stage of life. Maybe you've come across the book The Last Lecture or the powerful story When Breath Becomes Air or the familiar book Tuesdays with Maury. We're intrigued by the words of those whom the axe of death is striking. And this, I think, is also why the words of Jesus, the final words of Jesus, have come to matter so much to centuries of Christians through the decades and years. It is possible, I suppose, that we could examine the entire life of Jesus up to that particular point of his crucifixion and have missed the point about him. It's possible to study his actions and his words in the Gospels and not really, truly know him. All of those good and challenging words that he spoke, all of those incredible deeds that he did, all of the acts of love and boldness, they might have been just a veneer of nobility. They might have just been the pretend facade of someone who simply had a Messiah complex. You do not really know the character of a soul until it is struck by the sharp steel of suffering. I'm sure the congregation that assembled at the foot of the cross on that particular day waited with bated breath to hear what Jesus would say now. The soldiers who had lashed him so savagely that his flesh literally hung from his back in strips now, they must have waited for him to cry out. Like everyone before him always had. The historian Seneca tells us that people who were crucified, typically cursed the day they were born, the mother who bore them, and the executioners who routinely would sit beneath the gallows gambling for the clothes of the soon-to-be-deceased. Those who passed by on the road to Jerusalem would also have expected a cry of torment. 
You see, the cross was situated purposely by the Romans along a main route so that people would come by and see what became of those who opposed the authority of the Lord, Caesar. And it became commonplace for people passing by to linger there at the foot of the crosses and to interact with those who were hanging there. And so awful would be the exchanges between those on the cross and those who stopped usually to heckle that the Roman statesman Cicero informs us it was sometimes necessary to cut out the tongues of the crucified, to stop them from issuing the blasphemies that they did, to keep them from from, uh, issuing forth in the bloody spittle down on those who stood below. Yes, even the scribes and the Pharisees, so eager to silence Jesus up to this particular point, must have been very eager to hear what he would have to say now. Surely he who had preached this ridiculous gospel of loving your enemies and doing good to those who hurt you and hate you, surely he would let that fantasy go as soon as the spikes sank into his soft flesh, as the blood from the crown of of thorns ran down and began to sting his eyes, as his exhausted limbs began to shriek in unimaginable pain, as he struggled with every last ounce of his energy to push himself up and catch one more desperate breath of air, surely then it would be clear from his words who he really was and who he was not. Everyone in the congregation that day expected a telling message to come from the lips of Jesus. But no one, save perhaps from the woman who had borne him and from the whore that he had saved, and from the beloved disciple named John, no one but perhaps those three were prepared for the words that actually came. As I said, you don't truly know the character of a soul until it is struck by the sharp steel of suffering And the amazing thing about the seven last words, the seven last statements of Jesus from the cross is that they are not the cry of death in all of its despair we expect, but rather a call to life in all of its fullness that we need. To quote a great theologian like some fragrant trees which bathe in perfume, the very axe which gnashes them, the great heart on the tree of love poured from its depths some of the most beautiful, meaningful words ever spoken in this world, for even in his very act of dying, Jesus is still showing us how to truly live. 
Take, for example, the first of the famous crosswords we're going to look at together and ponder deeply during this Lenten season. Think of these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Not a plea for vengeance as we would expect, but rather a gentle prayer of pardon. It strikes me as I think about these particular words that there are several things about them worth thinking about. The first is just how unnatural they are. And I want to just acknowledge here that we have heard this story so often. We have read these words so many times. It's very, very easy to become deadened to them, to be numb to them, to have our eyes just glaze over, our consciousness go to sleep as soon as we go down this familiar pathway. But I want you to think freshly with me and let them penetrate you. Think, first of all, how unnatural are these words of Jesus? I think in this regard of the story that Max Lucado brings to mind of a historical character in our own country's recent past. He was a balding, bespeckled man who was out there just riding in New York subway some years ago when he was approached by four young hoodlums who demanded his wallet. It was the kind of scene that was commonplace. It is still in our own city a commonplace occurrence. It happens in in countries and towns and villages all across the world, millions of times perhaps over the course of any given decade, but this time something different happened. This time the would-be victim calmly reached into his jacket as the men talked with him, pulled out a gun and emptied bullet after hot bullet into the bodies of his assailants. And overnight, the name of Bernard Hugo Getz became a national phenom. Overnight, he became a household name, a national hero of sorts. A major actress sent him a congratulatory letter. A rock group actually penned a song in his honor. People made t-shirts with the statement Thug Buster on them. And they sold out in cities all across America. Money flooded in from every single state in the Union to help pay for his courtroom defense. Why? Why did people respond to Gets this way? Because we are tired of people taking advantage of us, hurting us, people who should know better. We are tired of people that do heinous, awful, unjust things. And there's something in us that resonates with somebody who gets mad as you know what and resolves, I'm not going to take it anymore. That's natural. That's the natural human response. You know that response. You and I have had that response. We've experienced people taking advantage of us or doing things to us or people we love that seem so obviously unforgivable. How many of you secretly wish you had one of those James Bond cars with the headlight missiles to take care of some of those drivers out there on the road who just are so horrible and 
and so unconscious in their treatment of other people? What about those con artists that have ripped you off or those people who say those cruel things behind your back thinking you'll never hear about it or those folks who spam you at dinner time with telephone calls or those people that offer you apparent deals that are truly rip-offs or those strong people that bully weak people or vulnerable people or trusting people? How about the injustices done by a powerful people and the savage things that even people you would trust to love you actually go ahead and do to you at times or to the people that you care about? Have you ever been uh, in a place where you heard about some murderer or some molester and you felt yourself this rising up, this divine, you think. It feels like it's a spiritual impulse, a sense of injustice, and you felt enraged, and you thought, I, I, I want to take revenge on this person. I just want to even the score. This is natural. What is unnatural is forgiveness in the face of such wrongs. It is just not natural for a, a victim to pity the victimizer and to extend to that person the grace of pardon. It's not natural for you or for me to forgive the people who brazenly harass, hurt, or malign us and our loved ones and what Jesus did on the cross by saying, I forgive you to the very executioners who put him there. Well, friends, I submit to you, that just blows the circuit boards. Again, don't glaze over here. Think about this. This really happened. Forgive Caiaphas the high priest who allowed one of his soldiers to put a chain metal fist into the face of Jesus, forgive him. Forgive Pilate, the gutless politician who would sentence you to death just to save his job even though he knows you are completely innocent. Forgive Herod who would mock absolute wisdom by robing you in the clothing of a fool. Forgive Judas, that backstabber, and Peter, that blowhard turncoat. Forgive the soldiers that put you there, the hecklers delighting in your agony. Forgive them. I say no. That kind of action is unnatural but it is more than that it is more than that what makes Christ's words on the cross those first words even more stunning is that they were not just unnatural words they were unconditional words as well I mean we could possibly resonate with Jesus if he had said, For Father, forgive them as long as they take me down from here right now and get me to a doctor and bandage me up. We could perhaps understand the words if he had said, Father, forgive them if they feel really sorry about what they are doing. 
or if he said, forgive them as long as they apologize for what they have done and promise never to do anything so unjust to anyone ever again. Maybe we could understand forgiveness in that context because this, of course, is how we typically forgive. When there has been repentance, when there has been godly sorrow, when there has been the condition, whatever we might prescribe as that condition that has been met. And there are times I think it's very difficult to reconcile ever with someone where there is not actual repentance, so don't get me wrong on this. But what the cross is about, what Jesus did in that place, the luminous nature of his witness in this historic, world-changing moment is a picture of a forgiveness that comes without condition. And this, I think, displays a, a third quality to the words of Jesus, this forgiveness that he extends to the vilest of possible sinners the deepest kind of forgiveness is unnatural and it is unconditional only because it is so understanding. It is so understanding. What then does Jesus understand? It is simply this. Jesus understands that his murderers and his mockers don't. They don't understand. They don't get it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The great Roman Catholic pastor Fulton J. Sheen once put the truth this way. He said, if Christ's killers knew what they were doing and still went on doing it, if they knew what a terrible crime they were committing by sentencing life himself to death, if they knew what a perversion of justice it was to choose Barabbas over Christ, if they knew what cruelty it was to take the feet that trod the everlasting hills of heaven and pinion them to an earthly tree, if they really knew they would never be saved. They would never be saved. In like manner, if we knew what a terrible thing sin truly is and went on sinning anyway, if we knew how much love there was in the sacrifice of the cross and, and still somehow refused to fill the chalice of our heart with it, if we knew what gigantic failings God has overlooked in your life and in my life, and we just kept on judging other people for their foibles, if we knew all of these things and still kept our lives from Christ and his church, we should be utterly lost, utterly for it is not our wisdom that saves us. 
It is our colossal ignorance. It is Christ's understanding of that. As Bishop Sheen remarks in closing, it is only our ignorance of how serious sin is and how good God is that excuses us for not being saints. Jesus forgives you and me, not because we have it figured out, but because in his divine wisdom, he understands that we do not understand. We generally do not actually know what we are doing. And that is, of course, a tempting argument for just deliberately going on with our lives, just as they are. Oh, good, he understands. But I think if we have stood together at the feet of the cross and truly looked into the face of Jesus, and we have realized that these words he speaks that are so unnatural, unconditional, and understanding, he's not taking back. <laughs> he's pouring out of the depths of his absolute holy goodness towards us. I think if we've taken in even something from that encounter with him, it will inspire in us an even greater eagerness to repent of at least the vices and the vanities we know about. At least that part of our sin we can see. And we will go on and pray, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you do to save me even when I'm too blind to fully appreciate it. I would, however, like to suggest that there might be one further response we might make to what Jesus has done. I want to venture the possibility that encountering Christ could actually open up our hearts to extending that kind of grace, the kind that goes against human nature that extends pardon without conditions to someone else. I want to just hold out the possibility that it could have that kind of impact on you and me. So that when your spouse treats you really coldly, or when your kids break your heart and your hopes, or when some slimy competitor or client rips you off, or some person that, that pledged their undying loyalty to you turns around and betrays you, or when some slob steals something from you, or some sales clerk treats you rudely, or when that person from the other party says that unconscionable thing, or that person in power does that unjust, unforgivable thing to you? Is it possible in light of God's grace to us upon the cross that you and I might do more than simmer, might do more than rage, might do more than seal off our hearts or plot to get even? The question I would ask is what do the cross words mean? What do they mean to you and to me?
How many of you may have seen at some point the movie Schindler's List? Schindler's List. Liam Neeson is the starring role. It's, of course, the story of a remarkable man who saved uh, so many uh, Jews during the uh, Nazi Holocaust at great risk to his own life. And there is this scene in the, in the movie in which um, Oscar Schindler uh, is, is talking with someone else who has tremendous authority, who actually, it's a Nazi officer, actually has the power to free people and save people. He has the capacity to do something that would be filled with amazing grace and life-changing influence. And, and Schindler says to him, the greatest power of all is not the power to exact judgment. It is the power to pardon. And for just a moment, it looks like the officer could take it in. But he does not. He can't quite believe it. He can't quite allow it. But I think it's true. I think it's the greatest power. I think it's the greatest power not only for what it might do for the other person, but for what it might do for you. And I saw that power. I saw that power in Technicolor once. I saw that power flowing from the wounds that came from the acts that evil had made in him who was actually the tree of life himself. Never will you or I ever have more justifiable reason for pronouncing judgment on somebody than Jesus had as he hung on that cross. Never will we have as much reason to not forgive as Jesus had when he hung on that cross. And yet, he chose not to render evil for evil. He said something to me and to you that I think now maybe we could actually say to some very, very undeserving person out there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Because even with his dying breath, Jesus gave us words we can live by. And the question is, will I? And will you? Please pray with me. Father, you, you know us. Um, you, you know us intimately. You know that there is little or nothing in, in our nature that makes it even close to natural to forgive those who've wronged us. It, it just feels unjust, frankly, that we should offer grace 
without setting some kind of responsible conditions on which that grace would be given. But seeing what amazing understanding you have looked upon our ignorance of our own sin, seeing how you have extended to us a pardon we hardly even know we need, we just ask you to pour into us something of your divine nature. May the dawning knowledge of our own blindness make us extraordinarily patient with the sins of the people we'll meet this week. For we pray in the name of the Savior who spoke those words of life, Thou art forgiven. Amen.